The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Before we get into God's Word this morning, let's prepare ourselves through the use of uh, confession of sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He always does the same thing every time to forgive us our sins, all the, whatever sins we uh, confess to Him that we acknowledge or admit. He's always faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, cleanse us, to purify us from all unrighteousness. That is, any sin that we commit that we don't remember or that we don't know is a sin. Remember, the issue is that they were all paid for at the cross. From eternity past, God knew every single sin that we have ever committed. You know, that's one of the most incredible doctrines that, that uh, we can rely on, is that no matter what we do, even when we sin in such a way that it shocks us, we see somebody else commit a sin and that shocks us, we know that it hasn't surprised or shocked God, and that God the Father knew about every single sin that we would ever commit billions and billions of years ago. And so there is no sin that we can commit that surprises God. There's no sin that we can commit that Jesus Christ did not pay the penalty for in full, whatever that sin might be. So when we come to the Lord in confession in 1 John 1, 9, what we are doing is basically claiming uh, that that sin was paid for on the cross. We are stating that to God, admitting or acknowledging the fact that we have committed that sin, and it is the blood of Christ, it's His spiritual death on the cross, blood of Christ being a metaphor for the spiritual death of Christ on the cross, and it is that death that is paid for it. And so on the basis of the fact that it was paid for in full, that sin is already taken care of, and we re-enter fellowship with God and recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So with that in mind, let's bow our heads together and confess our sins and quietly, private, in the privacy of our own soul, and then I'll open in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have this morning to gather together and study your word for the freedom that we have in this nation to do so. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is absolute truth. Your word tells us everything we need to know about life, about the spiritual life, so that we can live to please you and to glorify you, so that we can be victors in the angelic conflict, so that our lives can be a testimony to the angels. Father, I pray that as we study your word this morning, that the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us and who is our teacher will make these things clear to us, that we can apply them in our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, something came across my uh, email this week. I've got a friend of mine. In fact, he's the uh, song leader down in Houston. and He puts out a number of jokes. At least every day I have a raft of new jokes on my email. And this came across this week. Fractured Bible stories. Number one, Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. Number two, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day and a ball of fire by night. <laughs> Number three, Moses went to the top of Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments. Sinai. Four, the seventh commandment is thou shalt not admit adultery. Number five, Joshua led the Hebrews in the battle of Jericho. Six, Jesus was born because Mary had an immaculate contraption. <laughs> Seven, the people who followed Jesus were called the twelve decibels. Eight, the, epi the epistles were the wives of the apostles. Nine, one of the opossums was St. Matthew. Number ten, Salome danced in seven veils in front of King Herod's. Herod, H-A-R-R-O-D. 
11, Paul preached acrimony, which is another name for marriage. (laughs) 12, David fought the Finkelsteins, a race of people who lived in biblical times. And 13, the Jews had trouble throughout their history with unsympathetic genitals. And 14, a Christian should have only one wife. This is called monotony. Okay, so much for that this morning. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians begins, Paul, an apostle, not from the source of men, nor through the agency of a man, but through the agency of Jesus Christ, and God our Father who raised Him from the dead, and those and all the brothers with me, to the churches in Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself as a substitute for our sins, so that we might, He might deliver us out from this present evil age according to the will of God of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, Galatians is, I think, one of the most important and critical books of the entire New Testament because it deals with several vital themes, themes that are crucial to understand today. And we're going to be addressing this with both of our study earlier on Sunday morning in Galatians and Uh, later in the Gospel of John. And that is the whole issue of just what is the nature of the Gospel. What must a person do or believe in order to be saved? What destroys salvation in the process? What negates the Gospel? We get into that in the second paragraph of Galatians. And today we live in a time when there's much confusion about the Gospel. It's just amazing how many people out there who are so-called theologians and Bible experts who have no clue as to what the gospel is. And they confuse the gospel with uh, the Christian life. They confuse it with works. They believe that assurance is grounded in what happens in a person's life after, after the point of conversion, and that assurance is grounded in works and not in the promise of God. And all of this comes under the general title of Lordship Salvation. Now, if you have not run across this in your conversations with people, basically what this means, and the way they get this term, is that if you're going to truly be saved, then you have to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord of your life. If He's not Lord of everything in your life, the little rubric they use is, if He's not Lord of all, He's not Lord at all. Lordship salvation uh, takes faith to mean commitment. Lordship salvation says that the assurance of our salvation is grounded in the evidence of our salvation. So if you look at a person's life to examine their fruit, making every believer fruit inspectors, if you look at a person's life, then um, you examine the fruit, and if there's no evidence of salvation, then there is no salvation. They also make a distinction between the kind of faith that saves and everyday faith. They take faith to mean commitment um, and a number of other things which we'll look at in our study later on this morning in the Gospel of John. So we're going to be addressing these issues, just clarifying what is salvation, what is justification. All of these things will be studied in Galatians. I want to give you a little bit of an idea this morning about how I approach the study of God's Word. When I start working with it through a book like Galatians, I just, uh, you just start in, uh, maybe I'll look over a couple of outlines that are available in different commentaries, see what some people have done, just to give me somewhat of a frame of reference to what the problems might be, what the issues are in that epistle. And then I'll start off, and I do all of my study in the original language, in Greek in the New Testament, Hebrew or Aramaic in the Old Testament. And I'll take a passage like this, the first paragraph, and I take it paragraph by paragraph. In English, the basic unit of thought is a sentence. 
a group of sentences that revolve around a common theme is known as a paragraph. And so a paragraph is your basic unit of study. And sometimes when we get into detailed exegesis and we're going through a verse word by word, you lose the sight of what the paragraph is, what the main flow of thought is. So we'll constantly be going back and forth between analysis or exegesis when you look at the grammar, the, the uh, uh, syntax, uh, and the, and the uh, lexical studies in a particular sentence and then synthesize it by putting it back together. Uh, I don't want to get into a forest where we're looking at the leaves and the bark and the cellular structure of each tree in such detail that we lose sight of the forest because the forest is very important. You have to understand the, you know, as ecologists would say or as scientists would say, you have to understand how everything within the environment of a forest relates to one another and not just each detail within that. So we'll be going back and forth between analysis and synthesis. And one of the first things that, that I do when I begin to approach a study like this is I just do a rough translation and read through the passage. And then I sit down and I say, now, how would I express this paragraph if I were to reduce it just to one sentence? And my sentence for describing this is that Paul emphasizing his apostolic authority, addresses a letter to the Galatian church, churches reminding them of Christ's death on the cross for them. And that's what's taking place in this first paragraph. We know from the salutation that it comes from Paul. What, what do we know about the Apostle Paul? Well, first of all, he was not born Paul. He was born Saul. He was born in the city of Tarsus, which is a small, uh, rather large city at that time, on the coast of um, in Asia Minor, just where the coast comes across the south, southern part of modern Turkey, and then begins to uh, turn south. It was a uh, there was a major university there, which was also a medical school, and some people think that that's where um, where Luke went to medical school, and perhaps after uh, Saul of Tarsus was saved and became known as Paul, he went back to his hometown in Tarsus for a while uh, while he had to uh, grow to spiritual maturity and it was there that he met uh, Luke who was in all probability a, a Gentile. He might have been a Jew. We, we're just not sure. We can't say anything definite. But it could be that, that that's the place where they um, began their friendship. Paul was a, a fascinating man. He had obviously had a, a rich uh, academic training as a young man. You know, only, I think, in our modern secular education system do we um, uh, downplay with low expectations of, of education what, what children can learn. And uh, you look at some ancient cultures and what they, they taught and what children were able to assimilate and, and learn is just incredible at a, at, a, at a young age. And Paul, through his, we know from analyzing his writing, his, um, his ability to present an argument, the logical structures of his arguments, the uh, words that he uses, the metaphors that he uses, the idioms that he uses, that this is a man of incredible intellect. And I think uh, you can cite a number of non-Christian secular scholars who would say clearly that uh, from what we know of, of this man, Paul, that he was one of the greatest minds of all time, one of the greatest intellects of all times. But it is not his natural intellect that gives him such insight into spiritual things. Because as we know in the spiritual life, our human IQ is not the issue in learning and assimilating the Word of God and spiritual truth. God in His grace makes that possible and provides that for every single believer. So it doesn't matter what your academic background is. It doesn't matter what your native intelligence is, what your IQ is. The issue is whether or not you're a member of the royal family of God. Because at the instant of salvation, God the Holy Spirit indwells you and you are given a human spirit. And it is by means of that human spirit that the Holy Spirit enables you to understand any doctrine in the Word of God. All that you need to do is show up at Bible class and uh, concentrate a little bit, and God the Holy Spirit will do the rest, and you will come to understand any and every doctrine in the Word of God, no matter how complex and complicated it is. We can all understand it to a certain degree. Now, that does not mean that we will understand it exhaustively, because none of us can comprehend eternity exhaustively. We cannot comprehend the Trinity exhaustively. There are many things like that that, we, that are beyond our finite minds, but we can understand them truly to a certain degree. The Apostle Paul explained things and deep doctrines in such a way that even the Apostle Peter, at the end of 1 Peter, recommended 
Paul to his readers, but said there are many deep things in Paul that are difficult for us to understand. And so as we get into Galatians, we will come across two or three passages that indeed will be difficult for us to understand. The Apostle Paul was uh, born a Jew. He was, uh, we know, from the tribe of Benjamin, like his, the person he was probably named for, King Saul in the Old Testament. He was uh, uh, sent to Jerusalem when he was after, after he was bar mitzvahed, bar mitzvahed when he was about 13 or 14 to uh, train under one of the most uh, remarkable rabbis of all of history. Uh, Gamaliel was a genius, and among the ranks of all the rabbis throughout history, he is numbered among uh, the top two or three, and Paul was probably his star pupil. And he relied heavily, as a Pharisee would, upon his own personal merit. He was trying to impress God with his own obedience, with his physical birth. And, and as he says in Philippians chapter 3, as far as human standards would, be, would go, Paul, Paul met every one of them. God should have been impressed with him. And if anybody was going to make it into, into heaven on the basis of his personal works and morality, it would be the Apostle Paul. And yet, Paul realized that personal works and personal merit have nothing to do with eternal salvation. And he learned that one day when he was on the way to Damascus as he was persecuting believers in the early church. Uh, he was on the way to Damascus to uh, arrest some, take them back to Jerusalem for trial. Uh, and on the way, the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus and said, Paul, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me, being the body of Christ? And uh, Saul was struck blind, and it was at that point he recognized the fact that Jesus Christ was exactly who he claimed to be. He was faced with the reality of the resurrected Lord, and it was then that the Lord uh, gave him the gift of apostleship and commissioned him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And that's the basis behind underlying this first verse we come to. The first word is Paul, and the second word is a predicate nominative or a predicate adjective, rather, that describes Paul. He is an apostle. Now, we need to take some time to understand just exactly what this means. What is an apostle? Because this is misunderstood in many different circles today. In fact, if you go out among some churches, in fact, on the way up here, I, went, I was driving through Shreveport, I believe, and saw a church and it had the name of the church out in front and worship services, etc., etc. And then at the bottom, where it has the name of the pastor, it said, Apostle so-and-so. I have news for them. There has not been any apostles since the first century. And yet many people today are misinformed. They think that the gift of apostleship is they equate it with the gift of being a missionary. And they also have problems with his, within some denominations with the whole concept of apostolic succession that this passed down from one generation to another, and they claim that the uh, Pope is the successor of Peter and has the same authority as the Apostle Peter. So we need to examine what the Bible says about the gift of apostleship. So we'll start off this morning on this doctrine, the doctrine of apostleship. We want to start off by understanding something about the Greek word. The Greek word is apostolos. A-P-O-S-T, that should be an E-R-O, apostolos. Boy, I'm really misspelling my Greek this morning. Had to get up very early this morning in order to finish putting together the lessons. You know, this moving just has one, one headache after another. And I've spent the, I think I've spent the last two or three days just trying to get some semblance of order to all my stuff in my study and finally, yesterday, I spent all day yesterday uh, finally getting into the Word for this morning. And then I had to get up extra early this morning in order to, to uh, finish. So at oh dark 30, I was sitting there trying to focus on my computer and uh, understand what I was, was reading and, and writing about. Uh, Apostolos has a rich heritage in the Greek. Uh, one of the things we need to note is that in this particular passage... It is used without the article. Now, I'm going to get into some more technical stuff in the second hour uh, related to the use of the Greek article. It's very important in the first part of uh, John. But when uh, in English, when a word has the definite article, 
That means that the noun is definite. When it doesn't have a definite article, it makes it indefinite. Uh, in Greek, that's not true. If it does not have a definite article, it can be for emphasis of quality. It can still be definite, or it can be indefinite. But the definite article in Greek functions quite differently from the definite article in English. But here we have a use of, of uh, the indefinite article here because Paul is one apostle among many. So he says here he is an apostle. But the anarthrous characteristic of this also would emphasize the highest quality of the noun. And so Paul is, and that's what we would see here, is that Paul is emphasizing the high quality of apostleship. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostleship was the highest rank in the, is the highest rank in the membership of the royal family of God in the church age. So from Paul we know that number one, he was a Roman citizen by birth, which meant that he had tremendous privileges as he traveled throughout the Middle East. As a Pharisee among uh, the Jews, he also had a position of tremendous rank and privilege. But as an apostle in the royal family of God, Paul has reached the highest position of rank, of authority, of leadership in the church. Secondly, the word apostolos is a, is a, a Greek word that was used originally in classical Greek for a high-ranking admiral or general officer that was chosen to command either a naval fleet or an army. Uh, Herodotus uses this word when he's speaking of the uh, Peloponnesian Wars as the Athenians went into battle against the the Spartans. The Spartans had figured out a way to to bribe the admirals in the um, uh, Athenian Navy. So what they, the answer to that was that the Athenians would call in their admirals when they were getting ready to send the fleet out to do battle against the Spartans, and then they would wait till the very last minute and choose a, um, an admiral, and then they would send him out. And the root meaning of the word apostolos is the one who is sent. And then it took on a technical meaning of the one who was commissioned with a task. So this individual was commissioned to perform a task and given the authority and the responsibility to carry out that task. So that means that the word inherently connotes uh, command and leadership responsibility. It was also used to refer to a group of Greek colonists, colonists that were sent out uh, in Asia Minor to establish a Greek colony. The word was used to describe that whole group, and then it came to de- it was developed uh, over time to refer just to the leader of that group. So it, it came to mean someone with authority, Someone with leadership. It had to do both. Had both a military background and a colonial uh, background. So, when we come to the New Testament, then we discover that this word is used in the New Testament to refer to a spiritual gift, a temporary spiritual gift. And uh, among the church, we saw the other night that among spiritual gifts in the church age, there are two categories. Number one. You have temporary spiritual gifts such as apostle, prophet, tongues, healing. Uh, these were all temporary. They were designed for, to lay the foundation of the church and also the healings and miracles and tongues were designed as signed gifts in order to attest to the uh, authority of the uh, apostles. Secondly, you have permanent spiritual gifts like uh, pastor-teacher, evangelist, uh, helps, administration, these are some of the uh, permanent spiritual gifts. The gift of apostleship, in the um, by way of definition in the Old Test in the uh, New Testament, had two categories. The first category is a technical sense. It is a spiritual gift. As a spiritual gift, we know that it is given by the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. It is determined by the sovereign plan of God the Father, as we see here in uh, the opening of Galatians. uh, uh, Every member of the Trinity is involved in the process of determining uh, uh, the spiritual gift of each believer, the spiritual gift or gifts. I think a question came up last week, whether a believer can have more 
than one spiritual gift. And I think believers can have more than one spiritual gift. What we learn from, from studying uh, spiritual gifts is that people are also given gifts at different measure. So that one person may have a, 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 the gift of pastor-teacher to a greater degree than somebody else. One person may have the gift of mercy to a greater degree than someone else. I take it by analogy that the spiritual gifts that are listed in the Scriptures are sort of like the primary colors. You take a primary color and you just have one of the three primary colors and that's the color you have. You have uh, um, red. And then uh, you take... Uh, uh, blue and mix with that and you get some different colors depending on the proportion and the ratio of blue to red. And I think that's true. I think there are people who have... Uh, I have a friend down in Houston who's a pastor and I believe this man also had the gift of mercy. I've, if he doesn't, I've never met anyone who does. This man is incredible no matter how... Uh, when you go to him, you go through, you're going through a hard time and you just realize that this man has a depth of compassion for you, but he is also a very good Bible teacher and expositor, an excellent teacher. So people have different spiritual gifts. Some may just have one, some may have two, some may have three. They have them in different measures and different proportions, and they mix together along with your natural personality and your natural talents, and so they look different in each individual as they go along. But spiritual gifts are given uh, one at salvation. Two, they're determined by the sovereignty of God and distributed by the Holy Spirit, not by man. And three, they are irrevocable. You do not lose them no matter what happens, no matter how much of a failure you may be in the spiritual life, no matter what sin you might commit. You never lose your spiritual gift. And fourth, spiritual gifts are, in some cases, developed, just like you might have the gift of pastor-teacher, but just because you have that gift doesn't mean you have the right to get in the pulpit. You have to take time to be trained. Years need to go by. You need to grow to a certain level of spiritual maturity. You need to take time to study the Word of God. You need to go through that discipline. You need to go through a, a course of training in seminary, if at all possible. I think uh, one of the things that has happened today is there, there are uh, many men uh, who have gone into pulpits who do not have the proper training, and as a result, they communicate a lot of uh, uh, false doctrines and a lot of false ideas, and they mis mislead a lot of people because they think that, um, they, that they know enough because they've read two or three books. And nothing is more dangerous, I think, than someone who has had a year or two of Bible college or a year or two of seminary. That's why they call them, uh, you know, second year is called a sophomore, a wise fool. They think they know a whole lot more than they actually do know. So when we come to uh, uh, our study of, of uh, spiritual gifts, there's this technical meaning of apostle as someone who is uh, commissioned by Christ, When we look at the elements of the word apostle, the concept, there's someone who's commissioned by someone to a particular task. Uh, is commissioned by Christ Himself to the task of uh, establishing the church in the church age. That is the function. That's the technical use. Then there is a general use, too, a general use of the word that describes men who are commissioned by either a, a local church or by the, one of the apostles themselves as a missionary. This would fit sort of the colonial concept inherent to the background of the word apostle. They're commissioned by either a local church or by an apostle to go out as a missionary. The Bible uses the word apostle to refer to men like Barnabas, uh, James, the brother of the Lord who wrote the epistle that we're studying on Wednesday night, uh, Paul, I mean uh, uh, Barnabas, uh, Junius, James, 
and uh, two or three others are referred to in this second category. They do not have the spiritual gift of apostle. They do not meet the other qualifications of an apostle. And therefore, they are not an apostle in the technical sense. There were only 12 apostles uh, in that technical sense. Those were the 11 that... Uh, those were the 11 that were uh, re- the remainders of the 12 disciples with Jesus plus the Apostle Paul. When we look at the spiritual gift of Apostle, uh, first thing we need to notice, I want to give you about five points here. Or uh, seven points. First of all, the gift of Apostleship is the first and highest of all spiritual gifts ever given. This gift is listed first in terms of its priority in both 1 Corinthians 12.28 and Ephesians 4.11. Secondly, the apostles had plenary powers. That means full powers. The apostles with plenary powers were 12 men in the early church. 11 of the original disciples, remember they lost Judas, and the apostle Paul. Three, the spiritual gift of apostleship carried the highest authority God has ever delegated in the church age. The apostle had authority over all the local churches, and in contrast, the pastor has authority over only the one local church. Fourth, the purpose for the spiritual gift of apostleship was twofold. The purpose for the gift of apostleship was twofold. First of all, the communication of the Word of God and the formation of the New Testament canon. It was either all of the New Testament books were either written by an apostle or they were written under the authority of an apostle. For example, Luke was not an apostle, but Luke was the traveling companion of the apostle Paul and wrote under his authority. Secondly, uh, men like James we're studying on Wednesday night, was not an apostle. But he wrote under the authority of uh, John and Peter, who were apostles in Jerusalem at the time in which that epistle was written. So uh, Mark also was not, one of the, was not an apostle, was never called an apostle, but he was the traveling companion of Peter. In fact, it's pretty clear if you read the Gospel of Mark that the person who, who writes this knows a lot of intimate details about Peter. Therefore, most scholars believe that, that Mark got most of his information from the Apostle Peter. So the spiritual gift of Apostle was given, first of all, for the formation of the New Testament canon and the communication of Scripture. Secondly, the gift of Apostle was given for leadership in the pre-canon period of the church age. While there was no written New Testament, there needed to be leadership by those men who understood the doctrines related to the church age. This involved a number of things. The uh, spreading of the gospel throughout the uh, Roman Empire. We know that they not only uh, carried the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, but also to uh, all the ends of the earth. They, uh, there's a strong tradition in the church that Thomas carried the gospel down into India. In fact, it was not long ago that I read something about a group of, of people that were discovered back in the mountains of, uh, I think it was in Sri Lanka, that had been there for, for centuries. And they, tra- they had a Bible. They didn't have a completed Bible. They had an Old Testament. They had a couple of other uh, New Testament scriptures. But they went all the way back. To, they traced their beginnings to Thomas himself. And this was their tradition. And there were a number of other groups in India that substantiate that. There were also, there's also some indication that uh, some of the apostles made their way into China. Uh, Matthew, I believe, made his way uh, down into certain portions of Africa. Others made their way up into southern Russia and into uh, uh, Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and up into the Balkans. So there's, uh, there are various traditions that the uh, uh, 12 apostles carried the gospel throughout not only the Roman Empire, but also beyond the borders of the Roman Empire. And who knows where 
their followers took the gospel. One of the biggest questions people ask when you're witnessing is, what about the people who never heard? And the assumption underlying that is that it wasn't until uh, more modern times that the gospel ever made it to some places. And yet we know from biblical examples that the gospel could very easily have made it around the world within just 30 or 40 years of the death of Christ. For example, uh, in Acts, early on in Acts, I believe it's in Acts uh, 7 or 8, you have the story about the Ethiopian eunuch who's come to Jerusalem and he's on his way back to Ethiopia. And Philip uh, is miraculously taken to this uh, Ethiopian eunuch and gives him the gospel and he responds in faith alone in Christ alone. And then where does that Ethiopian eunuch go? He then goes to Ethiopia where he takes the gospel. So within a matter of just a short time, the gospel's taken to Ethiopia. And this could happen uh, anywhere. You can duplicate that anywhere else in the world. You could have an apostle make it to some place in Syria or some place in India, give the gospel, and someone, a merchant, or someone traveling to India from China, hears the gospel, gets some training, and then they take the gospel back to China in just a matter of a few years. So the gospel could make its way around the world very, very rapidly, and just because we do not have the historical records of it doesn't mean it didn't happen. It just means we don't know the mechanics, but we do know that God is faithful and that God would, would, could clearly has the power to make the gospel uh, clear and knowable to anybody in the world at any time. So the spiritual gift of apostleship was designed to, uh, to uh, give the canon of Scripture and secondly to provide leadership until the canon of Scripture was completed. Uh, it was also their, the responsibility of the apostles to train pastors, uh, to establish local churches, and to establish local church policy. Uh, fifth, apostles were not appointed until after the resurrection of Christ. Now, there was a group of apostles in Matthew 10, 2 through 4 that are mentioned, but this is a different category. Jesus sent his disciples, and the word there, used there in Matthew is apostles. He sent them to Israel. This was a temporary uh, commissioning by the Lord Jesus Christ and sending them out to witness to Israel. That is not what we're talking about in terms of the New Testament or church age spiritual gift of apostle. That did not come about until after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We looked at Ephesians 4 last week. Ephesians 4, 8 says, And he has distributed, he meaning Jesus Christ, has distributed spiritual gifts to men. Hebrews 4, I mean, Ephesians 4, 11 says, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. So it was not until Christ's ascension on the day of Pentecost was when spiritual gifts were distributed. Sixth, the spiritual gift of apostleship was temporary and discontinued after the completion of the canon of Scripture. Sixth point, the spiritual gift of apostleship was temporary and discontinued after the completion of the canon. And we know this for one reason, because of the qualifications to be an apostle. To be an apostle, not only did you have to have, uh, not, did you have to have a believer and receive the spiritual gift of apostle, but you had some physical qualifications. You needed to have been a, a witness to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clear in the farce of, of Acts chapter 2 when they chose Matthias, and we'll look at that in uh, just a minute. But in Acts chapter 2, one of the things that the apostles recognized there was that they were going to replace Judas with a new apostle, that this new apostle needed to meet the qualification of having heard the teaching of Jesus Christ. And secondly, they had to be commissioned as an apostle by the resurrected Lord. Now, some of you may ask the question, well, golly, if you had to be a witness to the teachings of Jesus Christ, then um, what about Paul? Let's go back and talk about Paul for a minute. Here's a timeline. We'll start the timeline here at roughly 4 B.C., that's the date of the birth of Jesus Christ in Bethlehem, approximately 4, 3 to 4 B.C. We can pinpoint that pretty easily from data in Scripture. We'll make as another mark here approximately, uh, let's just say, 32 A.D. for the time of the crucifixion. So we'll put a cross there for the crucifixion, roughly uh, 32 A.D. And then it was some... 40 days later, or 50 days later, that you have Pentecost Sunday, which begins the church age. So, 
here forward you have the church age. Now, Jesus' ministry lasted approximately three years, so that began in 29 A.D. roughly. Now, we know that the Apostle Paul, by, let's say, his salvation will say somewhere between 36 to 38. is when Paul, Paul is saved. Now, Paul, the picture that we get of Paul in Acts is that he's a young man, so he's probably in his 20s. So let's just choose a fairly conservative figure, and let's say Paul is 25, and we'll choose this latter date here of 38, which 25 from 38 is 13, so that would mean that Paul is born approximately 13 A.D., could be as early as 11. So he's born between 11 and 13 A.D., which would mean that when he was 13 years old, we'll just work conservatively with this figure, when he was 13 years old was the time that he was shipped out to Jerusalem to become, began his training under Gamaliel as a rabbi. So that means that he hits Jerusalem about 26 A.D., and he would then be about 16 or 17 years of age when Jesus began His ministry, His public ministry on the earth. So since the picture that we get of Jesus in the Gospels is that He was fairly well known and His name was well known and He created quite a furor among all of the people in, uh, in Israel, in Judea and in Galilee, that it would stand to reason that the Apostle Paul was one of the Pharisees who was probably antagonistic to the Lord in the Gospels. Now, we can't state that dogmatically, but it just stands to reason that if Paul is going to go to Jerusalem when he's 13 years of age, and he's studying there under one of the greatest rabbis of his time, that during the time that the Lord is conducting his public ministry on the earth, that the Apostle Paul was present. Since he's concerned about spiritual things, and this man's claiming to be the Messiah, just like many others at that time, like Nicodemus, like Joseph of Arimathea, who were also Pharisees, they would go out to hear this man to find out what he was teaching. So I think that it's very likely that the Apostle Paul, before he was a believer, during the public ministry of Jesus Christ, went out to hear Jesus, this, this man, Jesus of Nazareth, to listen to what he was saying. So one of the qualifications for Apostle was that they listened to the... Uh, they listened to the public teaching of Jesus Christ, secondly, and were familiar with it, secondly, that they were commissioned by the resurrected Lord. This is also true of the Apostle Paul, but this could not be true of just anybody. It wasn't true necessarily of Barnabas. It wasn't true of Luke, because Luke was uh, somewhere else geographically during all of that time. It wasn't true for many other people in the New Testament. It certainly isn't true today. No one can fit either one of those those qualifications. So that would, uh, would definitely limit the application of the spiritual gift of apostle. Now, who were those who had the gift of apostle? First of all, we need to remember that there is a distinction between the two different categories of apostles. The first category is the, the twelve, the, those who are apostles with a capital A, those who are given the spiritual gift of apostleship. And secondly, those who are just generally designated apostles because they were commissioned by a local church or by one of the apostles to a particular task. There is a distinction there. So then, secondly, what is the roster? Well, first of all, who are these 11 men plus the apostle Paul? We find the list in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. First of all, you have Simon Peter. Of course, we know Peter. He was also known, as we'll see in our study of Galatians. He is also known by his Aramaic name, Cephas. We have Simon Peter. And then secondly, we have his brother Andrew. So first of all, there's Simon Peter. Secondly, Andrew, his brother. It's amazing how little we know about some of these men. Third, 
And fourth, we have the two sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder. We have James, who is martyred very early under uh, Herod Agrippa. And then we have the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel we're studying in the second hour. These are the two sons of Zebedee. John wrote first, second, third John, Revelation, and the Gospel of John. Fifth, we have Philip. Philip, from some of the indications that we have in the Gospels, was, was an evangelist and very concerned with evangelism. And uh, that's all that we know about Philip. We know that he used that gift a few places in Acts. We know that he, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, his daughters were uh, prophetesses. We have a little problem passage there we won't go into. We also know that, um, that Philip uh, communicated the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, e. Bartholomew uh, was also called Nathaniel. This is, you have different lists in different gospels, and by comparing, comparing the names in one gospel with the names in another gospel, you have uh, Bartholomew and Nathaniel must be the same name for two different names for the same person. Then seventh, we have Thomas. Most people call him Doubting Thomas. He's really cynical Thomas. Skeptical Thomas. He's not, he was the one who wasn't sure that the Lord uh, had been. Dead. Then, eighth, we have Matthew, who wrote the gospel by that name, the first gospel in the New Testament, and he was also known as Levi. He was a Jewish tax collector. Then ninth, we have uh, Simon the Canaanite. We know very little about him other than his name. Ten, we have uh, Thaddeus, who's also called, uh, or excuse me, tenth, we have uh, James the son of Alphaeus. James, the son of Alphaeus. And then we have 11, Thaddeus, who is also called Jude. These are the 11, and then 12 would be the Apostle Paul. Now, before we look at this, I want to turn, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, starting in about verse 15. And here I'll just relate the story here. What happens is Peter gets this great idea that because Judas has betrayed the Lord, that some, there's something special about the number 12, and so there needs to be 12 disciples. And so they're having a meeting. They've been, uh, been in prayer as the Lord instructed them to wait for Him in Jerusalem for the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Peter arises in, their, in the midst of the disciples and says to them, uh, so he makes the suggestion that they choose uh, among them, someone to take the place of, of Judas. So they, they cast lots and they choose Matthias to be the, uh, the twelfth disciple. The problem with this is you do not, man does not choose people to have a spiritual gift. Men do not determine who has any spiritual gift. Spiritual gifts are determined under the sovereignty of God the Father and distributed by God the Holy Spirit. Man cannot elect what is sovereignly distributed by God. So they, they, they pass out, choose straws, and decide who's going to have the spiritual gift of apostle. But 
this completely violates the whole concept of spiritual gift, which is what we see now. You can turn back to Galatians chapter 1, where we see the Apostle Paul emphasizing here in Galatians 1. Galatians 1, Paul says, first of all, he is an apostle. And then there's a parenthesis, a parenthetical statement. He is an apostle, and he's going to make a point in this parenthesis to make sure they understand his authority. See, this is one of the greatest problems with the Galatians is that they are not accepting Paul's authority anymore, and they're questioning whether or not he is an apostle. The background to the book of Galatians is that the... um, uh, this group of Judaizers has come in behind him, and they are uh, casting aspersions on what Paul taught and say, you know, you're not saved by faith alone in Christ alone. You really have to come in under the Mosaic Law. You have to be circumcised or, or you're not saved. You have to follow the law or you can't grow to spiritual maturity. And so these Jewish legalists have come in behind Paul. They're undercutting his doctrine, and they're saying, look, this guy Paul was okay, but he's really not an apostle, and you don't have to follow uh, his teaching whatsoever. So Paul is going to establish in this first chapter his credentials, that he is an apostle. And he starts off, and he uses the phrase, not from men. And the phrase here in the Greek is apa anthropos. Is apa, A-P-O, plus the genitive, plural, of anthropos. A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-S. Anthropos is the word from which we get our the English word anthropology, the study of man. So he says here, just a genetic term for humanity, mankind. Apa plus the genitive emphasizes source or origin. So the first thing that Paul is saying here, he's an apostle, but not from the source of men, not from the source of mankind. His apostleship does not originate from mankind. Secondly, he says, nor dia anthropu. This is dia plus the genitive singular of anthropos. Not from the agency. This emphasizes agency or means. It did not come to Paul through the personal agency or the means of a man. So up here it's not from men or mankind as a whole. Secondly, Paul says he didn't get it from a man. The gift of apostleship is not passed on from man to man. It is not inherited. It does not come through apostolic succession. In the early church, there was a teaching in the early, early church from the... uh, early 2nd century down through about the 4th century, where they did talk about apostolic succession. But this was not a succession from man to man. It was not a succession of gift from man to man. What they meant by apostolic succession was that you were teaching what... It was a succession of doctrine. You were teaching what the apostles taught. It's not that you received the gift or the gift was passed on from man to man, but that you were standing in the tradition of apostolic doctrine. You were teaching the same thing that Paul taught. You were teaching the same thing that Peter taught. That's what they meant by apostolic succession. It wasn't until uh, later on, by the 3rd, 4th century, that they began to come up with this idea that it was a succession of the gift from the earlier apostles. So Paul is completely denying that man has anything to do with the gift of apostleship. It does not come from the source of mankind nor does it come through the agency of any particular man. But, and here he uses the conjunction, the strong contrastive Allah, but it comes through the agency of Jesus Christ. And here we have this preposition again, dia, plus the genitive singular. 
D-I-A. Dia plus the genitive singular indicates agency. It comes through the agency of Jesus Christ. And so we have Jesus Christ connected here to God the Father. So we see that God the Father and Jesus Christ are both involved in the distribution of spiritual gifts. So when we define spiritual gifts, what we learn is that they come under the sovereignty of God the Father, the sovereign decision of God the Father, and Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body of Christ, but they are distributed and made effectual by the Holy Spirit. Now Paul then says it is from God the Father who raised Him, that is Jesus Christ, from the dead. Now this is very important. This is an aorist participle, hegairo, meaning to raise up, that God the Father is the one who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Now, God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and this mention of the doctrine of resurrection is an inference by Paul that this is part of the gift of apostleship. He is the one, it's a, a subtle reminder to his hearers that he has seen the resurrected Christ. When the Apostle Paul went on his first missionary journey, he went to the area of what is now south-central Turkey. And that is the area that is known as Galatia. Now, the Galatians were not native to that area. The Galatians had, were Celts. You know, I know up in Boston they call them the Celts, Celtics, but the proper pronunciation is a hard C. It's a K because there was no soft sound like it. There was no sibilant in Latin, and they were Celts. And the Celts were a group of uh, barbaric tribes that had originally migrated from uh, what we would call uh, uh, Western Russia, and they had migrated down to the area of, of France, Gaul. And uh, in fact, it's, it's rather interesting. You can trace this etymologically. You get to the term Gaul, which was the ancient name for the area that we call France. And um, most ancient vocabularies did not have uh, vowels. They just had consonants. So you have the Celts, which is uh, K-L-T. Now, when you go from one language to another, often a, uh, a G sound will harden or a K sound will soften. So the K sound softens and you pick up, you go from a K-L to a G-L. Also, you see the similarity between the Gauls, which was just G-L, and the Galatians, which is G-L-T, uh, which would relate here. So the, um, the Celts moved in, in their migration into uh, the area known as Gaul. Some of the tribes then went down into the northern part of Spain, and from there they uh, went across to Ireland, and then from there back over into uh, Scotland. Other groups decided to migrate back to the east, and they tried to go into uh, Greece and were defeated by the Greeks, and so they finally found permanent residence in an area of, um, of Asia Minor. They hired themselves out as missionaries to uh, the kings in that area, the rulers in that area, and made for themselves a homeland in south-central uh, Asia Minor or Turkey. And these were the Galatians. So they are related more to uh, the Irish and the Scots than they are to uh, any Semitic tribes or other native tribes to the area of Asia Minor. And Paul went to those cities in uh, Acts, on his first, uh, we, we know from his first missionary journey, he went to the towns of Derby and Lystra and Iconium. And these are the same people that he's writing to here to straighten out this problem from the Judaizers. And he spent some time with them, and so they're very familiar with his personal testimony that how he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior was when the resurrected Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. So we read in this verse, Paul, an apostle, not from the uh, agency are not from the source of mankind nor from the agency of a man but through the agency of Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and those with me those who are traveling with him would include Luke uh, Barnabas was on the first missionary journey but not on, on uh, the later journeys uh, Silas took his place so uh, there were some others with him who were in Paul's entourage and uh, took notes for him, probably took dictation as he wrote scripture, 
uh, carried out various uh, missions for Paul as he sent them to deal with different problems in different churches. So Paul uh, includes them with him in this address to the churches of Galatia. And then we'll take up in verse 3 next Sunday morning and we will see the basic structure of this book. And the basic structure of this book is that Paul is going to emphasize his authority, which we've already seen in the first chapter, and then in the remainder of the epistle, he will emphasize the grace of God and the implications of salvation for the believer's life, that we are justified by faith alone, and then if we live on the basis of that, we will be delivered from this present evil age. In other words, working out the implications of our salvation means living out the liberty that we have in Jesus Christ. And this is found in Galatians chapter uh, 4 and 5, or 5 and 6. So let's close here with a word of prayer, and then we'll have our break. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to look at your word this morning. Uh, to learn about the spiritual gifts, that each and every one of us has a spiritual gift, although the spiritual gifts of apostle and prophet and others no longer exist today, we each do have an important role to play in, in the church. These gifts are given to us by you through the Holy Spirit and that they are for the uh, ministry of the body. Father, we thank you for the clarity of Scripture to us, that by studying it we can learn all that you have done for us in our salvation and know that our salvation is based on faith alone in Christ alone, and that if we add any works to that, that it totally nullifies uh, our belief that salvation comes by your work and not by ours. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.